0: This boy and girl are going to be well-equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. right. so when I was filming this, I thought this was the 12th day of the 12th day of Christmas (laughs) Breaking Normal podcast launch, and it turned out to be the 11th, and that's a good way to describe this whole podcast. But I thought I was going into this podcast to explore turned out to have many more layers than I had previously thought. And the way I would describe that is interviewing my friend Monsel here, that I'm getting to know once again for one of the first times out loud, um, had not only shifted from a vegetarian to a hunter, but also from someone that's experienced prison and freedom. And man, I'm so inspired, so inspired by meeting someone for the first time and being like in awe of their intellect, of their charismatic ability to describe almost unfallible experiences into a way that almost anyone can understand, paradoxically, if that made any sense. And I trust this um, podcast makes a lot more than sense for y'all. And I encourage y'all once again to be going on the Breaking normal, miracle morning ritual walk while listening to this podcast, and maybe pausing it to pay attention to the nature that surrounds you and to the circle of life that you find yourself in. Whether that's paying attention to which direction the birds are chirping from, or um, which way the squirrels are going, or where other animals might be lurking. And to tune into that, tune into that experience. And I think that's a lot of what hunting is about, um, literally and metaphorically, is tuning into the vibrations not only around us but within us and seeing what we want to harmonize with, whether we're on a hunt or whether whether we're on some other sort of adventure. But in reality, a tre- whether it's a treasure hunt, a hunt for a food for a tribe or a, a hunt for a job or a mate, hunting seems to run deep. Um archetypically and metaphorically throughout everyone's experience, and I think uh my exploration with Mansell is it will bring up a lot for all the listeners around that and I'd love to hear about it through a review on the podcast, not only to hear about it but also so you're eligible to be one of those people to um potentially win a free trip to a tribe design, which it sounds like hunting might start being incorporated, whether it's before um, it is for Hawaii, maybe even some other ways as well. So I'm excited for y'all to join in on this and uh, attune to your hunting DNA, activate it, see what it has to tell you. What are you on the hunt for? I trust it's to be breaking normal for one. Peace. Enjoy Oh, um, um. uh, All right. Let's where I'm, where do I want to start? I'm gonna start right here. Thank you, Monsel, for coming on this Breaking Normal podcast show. Thank you for being open to to getting
1: together, especially after meeting so recently.
0: Yeah, there is definitely. Um, I think once again, I called in doing twelve breaking normal podcast episodes before I left Austin. And I think this is my 12th of one. And I think by calling that in, it created a lot of synchronicity and affirmations. And I think originally Keith Norris, the founder who was also interviewed with his wife, uh, Michelle, who founded PaleoFX uh, together. They, they suggested you when they found out I was here in Texas, going through like a kind of a rites of passage through my first hunt Where, um, and now we're gonna, our next intention for our next tribe design is to do a hunt before the event so we can procure the most wild, nutritious, unmanipulated foods because we're really about creating like the highest group flow state possible. And it seems like what we consume is a big part of that, of what we're gonna be putting out. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. So, synchronicity after synchronicity even on the way to meeting you i wanted to go i I was dropping my friend kevin off um in downtown austin and we went to go to on it gym just real randomly real quickly just like we're gonna go meet aubrey marcus real quick and that didn't work out exactly but on the way to meeting you (laughs) i took a detour to for whatever reason it was kind of funny how i did it and then kevin's like that's aubrey marcus right there (laughs) <laughs> and it was, he was just getting in his car, we, I just kind of stopped traffic, the much less traffic for a while and told him about it. And I told him I was coming to meet you. And he said, oh yeah, awesome. Uh, what I remember him saying is, uh, yeah, he's going to run hunting and ayahuasca retreats. That's what he said. And I was like, he just said it real quick. I was like, wow, he knows who wants, what, what is this all about? And now here we are getting to talk about that. Um, briefly how did what when have you done this yet are you planning one how did people potentially get involved if they're interested and what like brought you to this idea
1: yeah well great questions and i'm excited to talk about those two major topics in my life now when i first hunted Last year, in November, or in December, that experience was surrounded by a couple of intense ayahuasca experiences. And the, the fact that they were so close together gave me a certain very, very unique insight into hunting. A very, let's say, kind of altered perspective through an altered state of consciousness around what it meant to take a life. Obviously, it's unique to me because of my own proclivities and and interests and even the reason that I was compelled to hunt in the first place, but they all kind of created a a perfect storm for me where I fundamentally altered my relationship to death and not just the death of the animal, but what it means to be a human animal on this planet and, and take biological life in order for us to survive how I fit into that you know circle of life and death and because it was so transformative for me in changing my trajectory I wanted to create a similar space for other people to have that experience and that's where I developed the new brand named Oyasin which comes from the Lakota Sioux word or phrase metakoyasin, which is we're all connected. And that phrase is, is very emblematic of what we're trying to do, show people the connection that we have with the plants, with the animals, with everything that we we have on the planet.
0: Wow yeah i'm highly interested in this and um very much so in correlation with uh, my daughter seemingly to want to eat meat that's where i felt the conviction i was like there's been a i would almost say like a longing for in a while and i think i got turned off from the idea of hunting because my past associations with the culture what what it meant like and to be in Georgia like I wasn't striving to be a hunter growing up as a teenager in Georgia for whatever reason I it, it looked to me more like um yeah so yeah I had my judgments and anyways when I re- let those go and I felt the conviction the calling to what I saw when I saw my daughter eating meat was I want to go get the best meat and I think I'm supposed to do that um that yeah woke a lot in me and it brought up a lot it brought up a lot and then i got to do it it, it, all of a sudden when i felt that and i made a declaration i said it out loud to my friend he connected me with the guy and i was going like hunting next weekend and uh it's a big deal (laughs) a big deal i'm curious like what brought what brought you to wanting to do this and, and, uh, do you, what do you suggest for other people that might be feeling this call or this curiosity, but are highly cultured in a direction that wasn't towards hunting?
1: Yeah. Well, I, very similar to you, grew up in Texas where hunting culture was, and still to some degree is, very much geared towards hunting. Uh, certain interests with you know the size of the animal and 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 there's just some there's some shadow just like anything else there's some shadow involved in the hunting industry and, and and i still see that but the interest uh since i've consumed meat over the past six years has kind of steadily grown in me. And to go all the way back to my childhood, I was raised a vegetarian. And so there wasn't necessarily a moralistic component to it, but there was a kind of a progression that started from childhood, eating meat occasionally with friends, trying it, whoa, this tastes good, it feels good. And then when I moved out on my own Moving towards a more paleo style diet because I just felt better when I would consume meat. It took about six years for me to start having those questions around the fact that I was eating so much meat. I was mentally conceiving this sustenance coming from grocery stores and restaurants. And that felt off to me, it felt unnatural and that's really what led me or that was the impetus for me to organize some type of of hunting event myself and really I had tried many times to go hunting and perhaps the universe thought I wasn't ready for it or whatever the the reason was but you know friends who had property it would just fall through or everyone was going to this one uh, hunt and a couple people canceled and it felt like probably 3 to 5 experiences like that when i recognized that a uh, a colleague of mine ben greenfield was hunting with a guide and i asked him to put me in touch with that guide so that i could you know just take the time
0: put it on a calendar and make it happen and that's what i did Okay, nice. All right. This is this brings up so much. What One of the things you said, um, how you felt something was a little off about eating so much meat from the, that was provided to you from the grocery store, <laughs> in a way, um, it reminded me of something that I've been thinking about lately. And it's on the cover of my book, which I intend on changing. I think it's shedding the skin of what it wasn't to become something even more new and ready for a new culture. Uh, but it's a guy in a self-imposed prison with the key at the tip of his nose, and I—I I think that um, a lot of people are triggered by zoos by zoos and. For a lot of reasons, and I wondered recently, lately, I don't know why, I think, oh, we went to go visit elephants at a uh, preserve, and I just actually released a video right before this called this uh, circumcision of consciousness, and there's elephants in the background, I talked about the elephant in the room of America being circumcision, being normalized, Mm -hmm. Um, that's another story, but I think I was under the influence of seeing these animals that have been kind of retired from zoo type of experiences, And I think a lot of people get triggered by zoos because that's what a lot of people are choosing. (laughs) It's kind of, it's convictingly reflective of culture in America to me. And I've never felt that more than, I never realized that more until I did that hunt. I was like, oh my gosh, like there's such an experience with this hunt that is so much more real and like behind the veil and, and and it's like wow, I that's what animals in a zoo. That is a difference between an animal in the wild and the zoo. For one, an animal in the wild gets to hunt for its food, and an animal in the zoo just gets fed its food. Yeah, it. I think that has fundamentally
1: different psychological impacts on the creature that's hunting and you know self-sustaining versus just being fed. If you consider us, in your metaphor, to be that kind of caged animal that's just getting fed from the factory farming, there's so much that we miss out on from a purely psychological perspective. There's plenty of studies, there's plenty of evidence around the quality of the you know wild game meat, but if you look at just the psychological experience of taking the life of an animal, going through the challenges that are inherent in that process, going really getting your hands dirty, there I believe there is something fundamentally meaningful and fulfilling about going through that experience that makes the food infinitely more enjoyable than it could ever be, you know, no matter what fancy restaurant you might visit.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is you know, this is an important topic. I feel really good to keep going here. Um Yeah, so as our experience, the psychological experience of us harvesting food versus being fed it. And what about the animals? The difference the psychological differences in the animals that someone would be eating, like if, say a like a cow. All right, so from my understanding before even People settled these lands. There was animals that potentially existed. Maybe some of them really like a deer or a buffalo. And I, I haven't dove so much into this, but just that brief uh, consideration. I'm much more interested in consuming the energy of a wild buffalo or deer than I am a cow, a domesticated cow, um, and. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people buy—they buy into the idea that you are what you eat in a way. And I like to look at—I am when I—if that's true, then what am I looking at? How? What am I eating with my vision? What am I eating with my audio senses? What am I eating in my spiritual senses? And what am I eating food? Let's just make it literal as well. And uh, I feel much more aligned. It feels like—it feels like the difference between me drinking tap water versus spring water and i i would be curious if that what do you think about that do you think this is like the you know a lot of people talk about diet like just get protein or get this much why get this much uh chicken a day or this much uh a cow a day or pork a day do you think there's a upgrade with the wild game or yeah i'm curious what that brings up for you
1: yeah well first and foremost you know for anybody who's at that place where they're feeling like they just need to get a certain amount of meat per day and you know they only have factory farming available to them i'm really glad that i went through that step because that was kind of one step that i went on in my progression towards where i am now so i i had to go from eating nonsense food to getting you know good healthy grass fed proteins from the store but yeah, I believe that certain experiences, namely a very deep ayahuasca ceremony, showed me that in humans, we store our trauma in our body. So there's a fantastic book, The the Body Keeps the Score, I believe is the, ter- the, the title of it. And it shows how Trauma from childhood, from certain events, PTSD, etc., is really stored all throughout our body, not just in our mind. And if you extrapolate that to the experience of an animal, and a encaged animal that is basically not free to to roam, is force fed. Uh, in the worst examples, are you know provided with hormones and other, you know, unfortunate additives, you have a situation where they are storing trauma. To think that an animal just because it's a mammal is not an emotional being is categorically false. I have seen with my own two eyes herd animals feeling sadness. I mean, that's the projection that I have of their feelings, but I could I can see them looking at a dead relative that I had just shot and wondering what happened with my sister, what happened with my mother. And that is true of animals that are in factory farms as well. There's a, a level of trauma that comes with that. And when we consume that animal— we literally, our body breaks down that food and then reintegrates those amino acids, nutrients into our body. So let's say you go to the gym, you work out, you break down your muscles, you eat some chicken, that chicken is broken down, reconstituted to grow your muscle stronger. That chicken literally becomes a part of you. And if that is the case from a... Purely scientific perspective. This is there's no woo-woo ness involved. Then my conclusion was, I'm I don't want trauma of an animal to become a part of my body. I would prefer to only consume animals that I have killed from the wild or am at least intimately involved with their death.
0: Yeah. Um, This is a a side exploration because it's obvious that you've done a lot of inner research about this topic, um, and I'm inspired by it, so thank you. What do you think about – so are there – in factory farming, is there someone that kills the animals just like rapid fire, like puts a bullet through the head of – Hundreds of cows a day. Is that? Do you know anything about that? From what
1: I know, which is arguably limited, they have some. It's not a bullet. It's it's a specific device that they can inject into the the brain that'll kill the animal. Uh, other animals, they have to do it with the throat, and. It's a pretty regular process. I mean, it's, a uh, you know, these factory farms, especially on the worst end of the spectrum where, you know, they're just killing animals for selling to chicken, you know, like McDonald's or Tyson chicken or some of these big agriculture companies. It's a factory of killing. And I, uh, as much as I, it saddens me for the animals, it saddens me for whomever has to do that as their profession.
0: Yeah, that's for some reason I, I've that's something I've thought about. The person that may be All right. There's another kind of darker topic as well. The humans are very adaptable, you know. I
1: it's I I imagine, I hope they do a, you know, they, they suppress it in order to get through. I imagine it's not going to lead to, you know, healthy psychological outcomes later on in life but but maybe they've normalized it. i i can't judge
0: from my position and i i don't know what where their head is because in and this is another thing I, this is another subject i'm not so familiar with but i just thought of it as well that when like a lethal injection isn't there like multiple people pressing multiple buttons so they don't know who ended the life of a prisoner that was sent was sentenced to death. Do you know anything about that?
1: That I don't know. I do know historically when they've killed people by firing squad, that has been the case. So the reason why they have multiple people on a firing squad is so that technically you're not sure, you know, mm-hmm. who who has killed the the inmate or prisoner or whatever. But yeah, that might be the case as well with uh, with the execution, even with lethal injection today. I don't know. It's a it's an interesting moral dilemma, but you know, I think for we probably can find somebody to do every job, unfortunately or
0: fortunately. <sighs> That thought that brought me to uh, my grand that brought me to my grandparents imagining my grandparents. So I, from my understanding, they lived under a graveyard during the Holocaust um, because there were people that were, as you said, unfortunately enough, it seems as, as people can be trained to do anything. Uh, people are probably trained to be Nazis and whatever that came with their duties came with. So um, yeah, that brought me to that thought. Yeah. It's amazing.
1: There's a really great book called Ordinary Men, which is about a very specific penal battalion of Nazi troops who were going through the, the Ukraine and Poland and they were executing Jews in the different communities and... It was really amazing to look at their journal entries and their letters back home and the types of people that they were before they went into the war. And the whole premise of the book is how ordinary men, we all have that capability to turn to the darkness that many of them went to. it's, It's easy and somewhat intellectually lazy to suggest they're different they're bad. We don't want to be like that, but I think it's uh, actually more of a wake-up call that we can all behave like that.
0: Yeah, and that's I love that we're talking about that cuz I think that's where breaking normal is truly coming from is to is to like cultivate heart sync over group think. Mm. Um, and to like make that about the connection. And the idea is people can actually get more connected by disagreeing about ideas. And I think the same as, as you stated there, but I took it from that is like someone that's probably less, less um, prone to be like hypnotized by a hypnotist or a culture or a television ad or whatever may be more, less suspect to falling into a group think that's more dangerous, like becoming a Nazi. Um, because I imagine there was many, as my grandparents were courageous and survived the Holocaust. I imagine there's many people that survived the groupthink of enrolling into what being a Nazi stood for, and uh, did their own thing. We I and mean, we might not hear about them. Absolutely, there's there's entire groups
1: uh, of celebrated, basically, the underground. The there were you know numerous. German citizens that fought against the Nazi regime, even generals within the Nazi hierarchy that sought to kill Hitler and end the war after they found out that atrocities were happening. So there's many examples all throughout that particular time in history, but you know, history in general, of these courageous men and women who break normal
0: yeah 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 so I'm happy we however we came to this I'm happy we're going there because I think that's is somewhat of the roots of what I'm aiming to um catalyze for people and these experiences of us me doing podcasts with people such as yourself. It seems like you're breaking normal to me i i also want i wanna honor uh, you all i don't I don't know much about you I love meeting you in this in this way. So the other people can share my experience and your experience as well. And I judge you to be like very, a very advanced thinker. Well,
1: I'm honored by that. Uh, I I enjoy thinking. I, I would consider myself kind of a geek for sure
0: yeah yeah you uh, I, i'm yeah it's awesome it's awesome it's inspiring to be here with you and on a topic too that i'm so cur- like so fascinated about and what what we're doing for our next event coming to hawaii we're going to go there, there early with a group of guys and i know one of them i believe you know josh nordwick is it nordwick is yep, that okay josh nordwick i'm meeting him for the first time in hawaii and it seems like this is something y'all too share this passion in a way of, and the passion I mean is like potentially initiating other people into the hunting world and what that means from a, like a holistic heart felt way from a, like if someone's listening to this and they're feeling the call as well, and this is reminding them, um, that they're interested in maybe going on a first time hunt and like, it, maybe people have hunted even in the past and they've done it just to fit in but this time they're doing it with a new intention what would someone expect uh or it could anticipate from this experience and is there anything to do before or after to make it more integrated rather than shocking
1: yeah we have a whole system and we have and are continuing to develop this system our 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 Hunting retreats are called APEX, and they're conscious hunting retreats with numerous different levels, so beginner and intermediate and advanced. And we really start by curating the programming before coming to the event, so the information that one receives, the ethical questions, the moral quandaries that you might find yourself in that prompt you to think about what would happen in this situation, what would I feel in this situation, and then to journal what's calling me towards this right now, what about this experience is is drawing me towards. So I think the first thing that we do is really try and help people ask questions. And we are you know getting better at this as we go but we really want to differentiate from the experience of simply killing an animal because it's it is it can be as simple as just killing an animal and it could be as complex and rich and rewarding of an experience as fundamentally altering our relationship with with life and There's some interesting historical context behind our approach because, as I may have shared with you, the Europeans that came to America in the uh, you know 1600s in North America were oftentimes never hunting in their life. So we have an entire hunting culture that was derived from nothing because the Europeans didn't allow the the peasant class to hunt whereas in North America at that time there was a rich native american tradition of reverence for the animals of a particular way of doing things and you know we've lost a lot of that unfortunately but what we do still have oral traditions and other things like that we can implement in our own hunting practice and that's kind of what we have Aimed to do is bring some of those elements into the experience and hope to utilize that to get on this kind of group flow, you know, have certain experiences like perhaps a sweat lodge experience that really impact the way people are contextualizing taking the life of an animal as opposed to just a, a retreat event where they're, you know, killing something.
0: Okay, awesome. I love that. And who is we? you I, I imagine uh, that that's the collective we.
1: Oyasin for sure has you know, numerous people that that are in support of me right now. This is my baby, something that I've been developing the last half year or so. And we've had some early uh, retreats with first time hunters, given them the early experience. Um, so when I say we, I mean, it's the collective we because, Yes, I'm, I'm the, the one majority, the person who is involved in creating all of this for Oyasin. But at the end of the day, it, I've had so much help from so many people. And I mean, even you are a part of Oyasin in that you're sharing this message with a wider audience. So it's the collective we of
0: people who are interested in spreading this message. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And that, I love uh, y'all's mission statement. The like what you express there is so resonant. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's a big topic. It's a big deal. Again, where I want to take this. We're at the thirty-minute mark. This is fun. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking it's taking a little like three minute pauser mm-hmm. and yeah, just let this sink in. Cause you're definitely, <laughs> I think there's a good flow state happening Yeah, and I was like, I'm going to honor that pause as well. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to do one of these <laughs> round two. Okay. We took a, a three minute and we're back and, uh, Man, one thing that I wanted to address, before we began, you were talking about you, you your hands might be extra sweaty. Deanna, who just set the cameras up for us, my lovely queen bee, I don't know if you're into bees as well. Do you study bees? I don't study them, although I do love them,
1: love what they do for the ecosystem and their integral part of
0: proliferating
1: species plant
0: species yeah so uh, me too me too me three and i love the idea of the queen bee and the metaphor of it and i I like thinking of as embodying the essence of a queen bee and she set up the cameras here and just cruised out with princess devina but she has a thing she uh calls or she i don't know if she how she identifies with it when i first met her though she identified with a thing called hyperhidrosis is that something that you're dealing with you think similar symptoms exactly that's that's what i call it too i've probably the most
1: extreme case that i've ever met wow uh, someone this is
0: cool i just grew
1: up with sweaty palms and at a certain part when i wasn't so self-conscious i just decided i was gonna carry a sweat rag and wipe my hands and it wasn't a big deal but yeah it's been a part of my life and a pretty integral part of my life ever since i was a kid, and. Ironically, looked at my 23andMe results recently, and it said something like, my children have a 52% chance of having sweaty
0: hands." <laughs> Wait, how... Would it tells you... In mean, what way does it tell you that? Cause there had...
1: must be a specific gene that's hereditary. I, my judgment is it might come from Asia. I don't know the ethnicity of your queen bee, but mm-hmm. that's... Thai and Danish. I wouldn't be surprised if the Thai... Because I have Indian ethnicity, and so or ancestry, rather, and so I would be surprised
0: oh, if there's some genetic... Because I have another friend now that I think about it, and he's definitely Indian descent. Wow, I don't know. Does anyone else have a hyperhydrosis? Yeah. How many of y'all are from Asian descent, Asian roots?
1: Yeah, I'm sure it flex everybody, but... Uh, that's kind of. Those are a few of the guesses that I've made based on a little bit
0: of evidence that I have. So for Deanna, if I'm going to also continue to speak on her behalf, I would say it's been a bit of a like a hero's journey for her dealing with it. Um, and I honestly don't think it's an issue at all with me and her. Um, yeah, and I think by me thinking that. I do, I do think there's something there. There's something big there. Uh, I think that somehow it is triggered by Deanna. And it also indicates, I believe she also has healing hands. Hmm. I, believe she, I believe she has healing hands. I believe she's very special in so many ways. And I, I think there's a correlation of something with her hands and whatever she's supposed to experience around that to find that out for herself. She has she's gone through the gauntlet of doing like some sort of like uh Botox at one point to now I only I honestly don't know when her hands have sweated last, actually. Really? Yeah, I'm like thinking she probably will tell you, Oh, it happened she's very critical about it. But I'm like I don't know when last time I've noticed it actually. So I'm wondering what does that bring up for you? Have you had an experience around um but whatever that means, having sweat your hands or having hyperhidrosis or what, when you were younger versus now. It's funny. It
1: seems like such a random or innocuous topic, but the truth is it's like a very visceral topic because when I was a kid growing up and I was had that feeling of being the odd person out and certain very particular instances where kids were saying things like, ew, gross, your hands are wet, and things like that. It was a major physical attribute that made me question my worth. And I remember thinking, you know, girls are never going to want to touch me because I'm sweaty. They're never going to want to hold my hands. And it has... It was a really big part of my growth as well. When you use words like she ran the gauntlet or it was, you know, important for her. It was a very similar experience for me. I had the desire when I was in high school to do Botox, to do, you know, all these different prescription drugs and surgeries that might help basically just as a way of removing the pain. And uh, I'm incredibly grateful for my parents who you know, very scientific minded, but at the same time very conservative in their treatments and they basically told me that I'm not gonna be doing any of those things because, you know, there's too many side effects or it's too many risks. And it forced me to face it and it forced me to come to terms with it. And now it's just a it's a part of life. It's a fact of life. I sweat a lot. I change shirts a lot, do a little bit more laundry. That's about it. But it was, you know, I have a really supportive partner who really, like you, couldn't care less if I was sweating or not. She rarely notices it unless, of course, my hands are freezing and then she notices it really quick.
0: I And I will just be extra breaking and admit, and admit that I've even made the joke, especially early in our relationship with Deanna, Um but it's really, I haven't noticed it much lately, but it makes for a great lube. She didn't like that joke too much. I make that joke. So uh, maybe coming from the opposite genders, it's a little bit more uh,
1: uh, acceptable, but I love making that joke. Like, There's a very few things that's beneficial for, but that's one of them.
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating so do you think that there's a special power in your hands and have you found any special power in your hands through your hunting I, because i think you're it seems um so I, my first experience was very much uh with a rifle and even learning how to use that i'm like well holy mackerel and i from my it looks like you're into the bow hunting and what's the difference between those for you and yeah well bow hunting is a it's a lifestyle as much as it is
1: a skill or individual pursuit. So it's very challenging. It's, it's really, I would say primarily a mental game, uh, but it is very hands on and it it does require a certain uh, level of, of comfort using your hands and, and, in my case coming to terms with the sweaty hands and being able to navigate around that but typically the irony is which is really a microcosm for the rest of my life when i am aiming with a bow and i'm worried about the sweat on my hands and if it's dripping or if it's whatever on the bow itself that's when i mess up the shot if i just surrender to the fact that my hands are sweating and the bow's going to be fine and you know, a little bit of sweat's not going to hurt anything and I can actually focus on the shot, then the shot's good. And that's something that I had to learn throughout life was just the more I focus on how this thing is affecting me, the more I call that negativity into my life and the more I recognize it's just a part of my physiology, the easier I can actually just
0: do what I'm trying to create. Yeah, that's a big topic. It's uh, I, I was uh, acid reflux. I realized at one point I had what easily could be described as acid reflux. And then I um, learned that certain things triggered it, like canola oil especially, and any rancid oil, any oil that's not of supreme being. And then I stopped eating. I started, my diet got better. I I started treating it more as like a like the um if you're or bowling and you put the guards up it's like a guardrail, and I really yeah acid reflux has been one of my greatest teachers for optimizing my diet, and then I also think about that like with the the hands or anything anyone ADHD ADHD am, ambitious defiant happy animal that's what I diagnose myself as but I could easily be diagnosed as that. Um, and you, when you say your parents are very scientific-minded, I'm w- I'm wondering what you think about these topics. Like, what I'm what I'm I don't know if you get what I'm getting. at. But no, I don't. Okay, it's like the difference between <laughs> self-awareness and accepting the prescription, mm. Except, uh, accepting the subscription, accepting the projection, accepting like. I I imagine you are willing to honor your own ideas regardless of what too many people think. And you said your parents are scientific. I'm just like wondering what you're upbringing around how to think for yourself, how to, which I think is also breaking normal thinking for oneself is very breaking normal. And I'm judging you that you do that.
1: Yes. Well, I, I, I feel that I do think for myself and uh, I do, to some degree, have my parents to thank for it. Both my parents my mother has a PhD in in food science and agriculture. My father has a PhD in biochemistry. So there's a certain level of scientific rigor that comes with how I was raised. But by the same token my mother does have a Real love for the humanities and the arts, which I picked up, you know, learning history was really my favorite topic. And there's something about history that does teach you something about the gray area of life. Because it was great to have that influence, scientific influence, have that logical, rational, uh, you know, enlightenment ideals perspective but by the same token have the historical context which provides you a a series of facts and you have to decide what narrative fits best and there's not one right or wrong answer and so i would say you know i studied history in college that was my major had a scientific background as far as the industry I'm in and a lot of the work that I do. It's been in scientific realms. So I feel like that has given me a great balance to think for myself. But really, if I'm honest, the thing or the event that helped me think for myself the most was spending time in prison. I've spent six months in prison on an eight-year sentence, which is something I don't think we've actually talked about, but that experience was such a jarring experience to the system that my my perspectives on things changed pretty radically.
0: Okay, yeah, that's definitely that ex- explains, I think when I mentioned it some earlier, I saw something I imagined you were reacting to something and I didn't know what it was. I don't know if that's now what that may have been. I I don't know. Um, yeah, I would. I don't know. I would love to hear more about that. Um, you were in prison for how long? I was. It was six months. It
1: was a, an eight-year sentence. I was very blessed that the judge, my projection of his experience, was that he saw something in you know in a young version of myself, saw that I had done something wrong, but gave me. A second chance after, after a baptism by fire education. But to go back to the beginning, basically, you know, speaking of the sweaty hands and my relationship with myself and women, I was in high school and I, I had trouble, self-created trouble with relating with women, and there was a woman in Switzerland who I was very fond of and. I, in my insecurities, made the decision I was going to Switzerland to be with her, no matter what. There was some pain there, something where I felt like that's what I had to do. I had to get rid of this pain. I had to go, you know, be with this woman, and that compelled me to disregard the morality that I was taught growing up. And I worked in a museum. Uh, it was a small private, you know, museum. And I was stealing documents out of the museum and selling them when I was 19 years old, right out of high school. And I made enough money from that where I went to Europe for a couple of years. But when I returned to the US, I was arrested. And it took four years for me to finally come to any kind of decision around the case. At that point, I'd already finished a graduate or a undergraduate degree at the University of Texas. I started a business but when it came to fruition I had uh, a long eight-year sentence and luckily only spent six months in prison but that was in 2014 so it's been a little over four years now and it was a huge Learning experience, the best thing that ever happened to me, as I tell people, and definitely a a huge shaping of my personality today.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's... Thank you. Thank you again. Um, I'm I'm making sure I'm clear on what you were saying. So you got... The sentence was based on you... Selling documents, or what? I'm curious what you were doing. If that's cool with you, sharing. Yeah, as well. yeah. It's, it's just so I understand. Because I, for instance, I was like, I, I feel like I was really good at school, and I was even better at cheating. Yeah. So I'm like curious. i like, what did, were you doing?
1: Well, there were documents that there were historical documents, and so they were like from World War II. I stole the documents out of the museum, and then I was selling
0: them to collectors
1: who were interested in this kind of thing.
0: Okay, so that sounds pretty fascinating in itself. And then, but you were that. How was that tied to the girl? Because I needed that money to get to
1: Switzerland. Because my parents told me if I wanted to go to Switzerland, I had to come up with the money on my own. And the part of my brain that didn't want to work for ten dollars an hour all summer and still probably not have enough money to go to Switzerland was like oh, this is way too easy of an opportunity. I don't... And the crazy thing is that didn't consciously go through my head. It just slowly seeped into my reality. And it was... Before I knew it, I was
0: stealing documents and selling them. (laughs) But that is so (laughs) breaking normal. Like, most kids in this situation... So first, I want to note that how most people... Are probably if you want to really drive a human being, engaging their sexual energy, their attraction energy, to mate or to <laughs> engage in that type of activity, man, that's a great way to do it. Yeah, sex sells. It's all over the billboards. Just make sure we all are aware of that. Yes,
1: especially like, for a 18, 19 year old boy who at the time was a virgin, and it was an incredibly overwhelming concoction of evolutionary biological and
0: cultural factors and then I, and beyond that like i'm I'm happy you honored that call all is i've heard this quote that all is fair and love and more and i don't know what i think about that but i'm i'm like it kind of gets my hands to just be thrown up i'm like maybe that's right i don't know you did it. You did it. But most people, I think, most kids in that scenario probably resort to doing like stealing money or um, selling drugs or something. Like, what in the heavens? How did you get in, involved in this? lab. I. I. That doesn't sound so normal to me. If I was going to go like, if I had to go make a lot of money real quickly, the first thing I wouldn't. It wouldn't be the first thing I think of to go into to get historical documents from a museum and sell them to. How did that happen? How? Where did you wake up to that idea?
1: Right. Well, it was. It really was put on a platter for me because I, growing in high school, in school in general, I did. I was not a huge fan of doing what people wanted me to learn and trying to you know read the books that that were designated for me, which. My lack of interest in school should not be translated to a lack of intellectual interest because I was incredibly interested, but I was just in historical topics. And when I was in high school, I was a collector of World War II items, many of which I still have to this day medals, I have uniforms, I have all kinds of cool stuff that I purchased, you know, after making money authentic, you know, with positive means like mowing lawns and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I started doing this work with the museum as an internship. And I remember sending pictures of the documents like, whoa, these are the documents I'm working with to these collectors as more of a historical interest. Like look at this Cool th- stuff that I'm working on, and they're like, "Whoa, that's worth like ten thousand dollars," and that okay, so that's seated in my subconscious somewhere. Then two months go by, I'm still working with these documents. My parents say you need to come up with X amount of money in order to go to Switzerland. That seed ha- that was planted by those guys telling me how much it was worth starts growing real quick, and sure enough, I have. Outlets to sell the documents before I even steal them it was like people were like yeah I'll give you 10 grand for that and I was like I haven't even taken it yet and I already have it sold it was so easy in retrospect it was almost like the universe was just trying to to trip me up so that I could go through this whole learning process but I
0: succumbed <laughs> to temptation and and then you got sentenced with eight years you said yes for what, what
1: was the eight it was it was first or second degree felony theft wow
0: and that you spent six months in prison then that cleared you of that well that was i'm still technically on probation
1: so i Report every few months to a probation officer. They just check in, make sure I'm doing okay, not getting in any kind of trouble. And then other than that, I am, you know, pr- pretty much in the clear so long as I keep good
0: record. Uh, Man, okay. So that's, and you're saying those six months that you spent, and what was that scenario? What, like, just so the audience and myself can understand briefly, what were those six months like? And because you're saying that it might have been one of the most enlightening experiences. That was like a real wake up call. Absolutely. So, yeah, what was the experience and what did it wake you up to?
1: Well, it was, I thought I had learned so much just getting arrested because when I first was arrested, when I was. Uh, 20, I had kind of a dark night of the soul moment where I was at home I was eating badly and it just kind of like slowly had to crawl my way out of a kind of a depression or a rut that I had found myself in, but prison accelerated that even harder. It was like, if you're looking at a graph I was like going up, up, up and then just dragged back down by prison and then forced to to start that climb again, but you know prison it just it just robs you of all the control that you think you have and all the power you think you have and I got to a place where I didn't control my daily regimen. I didn't control anything about my day uh, I didn't have any um, real possessions so it kind of stripped me down to just me and there then comes kind of an internal conflict or turmoil that comes from that and when I was the first half it was basically all about me feeling sorry for myself and Hope it, when is this going to be over and trying to talk with my lawyer like do you know when I might be released or when probation's coming or parole or whatever and it was just so much struggle and resistance to the state that I was in and then there came a certain breaking point real low point where you know I remember just crying under the bed with my blanket over my head and from that point on, I was just like, "This is where I am, and that's it. I'm gonna do the best I can with what I have right now." And so from that point on, it was like I started waking up early. I started fasting in the morning. I started saving, you know, different types of foods and like eating certain types of things. So I'd spend all my money instead of on like cookies and stuff because you can like buy food from the the vending. You know, people instead of cookies and all kinds of stuff that would make me feel good about being in a shitty situation, I started getting like tuna packs and sardines. I started eating right. I started exercising. I started reading voraciously from you know the the, the library that they had there. And so that second half of my time in prison was like diametrically opposed to the first half, where I was very focused on being the best version of myself with what I had and that has kind of carried on you know to this day I just always try and there's a self-motivating aspect of myself that's valuable for my endeavors and I think a lot of it comes from that place
0: yeah, and would you agree that um I mean this is awesome. Would you agree that someone can wake up to that without having to experience that contrast? Absolutely. I think that there's numerous
1: ways people are finding different kind, you know, different types of technologies to do that every day whether it's You know, Vipassana meditation, 10-day silent meditation retreat where you go to some pretty deep places when you don't talk for 10 days and you're just with your own thoughts. And then, you know, hunting experiences like I had a tremendously transformative, you know, hunting experience and you create tribe design experiences for people to have those kinds of epiphanies. So I think there's all kinds of specific, like tangible experiences that people can have. I do think there's something valuable about pain and the challenges that life puts in your path as a mechanism for growth, but we've all got pain. No matter how great your life is, there's pain somewhere there, and if you can see that pain as a learning opportunity, then it can help you come into that awareness. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, there's always some kind of existential pain. Uh, the further up you go on Maslow's hierarchy of needs.
0: Yeah. And then pain, pain is, I guess, what someone chooses it to mean. I I don't know if everyone experiences, experiences pain the same way and it might've been what we started with it. What might be painful to someone else might be enjoyable to someone else. And, that's it. Also, and that adds to the, it thickens the plot. <laughs> Absolutely,
1: yeah. I guess maybe pain could be substituted for discomfort, because I think we're all gonna at some point face discomfort. But the more we can em- embrace, or at the very least, learn how to be comfortable with discomfort to some degree, the easier it is for us to see those universal truths
0: yeah and i think that's the and i think that's what the zoo is the wake-up call to it's like wow am i being fed that's to circle it back it's like to go hunt the food there's some gonna be some uncomfortable things if i'm gonna project my experience yeah, a lot of people kept asking me like oh wow that happened like they were amazed like that would you have fun i'm like yeah i had fun and i had a lot of other things too i had a lot of other things yeah it's
1: just from my experience man like stabbing a deer behind the shoulder while looking at it three feet away that's a powerful experience i wouldn't necessarily say it's a fun experience spending three hours four hours butchering a giant bison because it's just so big and so much meat and so hard is i wouldn't call it a fun experience but it's a powerful experience for sure so absolutely i think it might be a projection but i think it's probably a pretty universal projection when it comes to hunting
0: and then uh you mentioned something else uh, just briefly because i i love i i had a breaking normal cool bus at one point and on the back of it is like what's most personal is most universal so did you you said you were facing harder or more challenging times before as a teenager or something that Well, well, I I was wanting to know more about that, if you're cool with sharing it.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what specific you're talking about with regards to kind of the the hand sweating. No, something you got yourself in trouble with the law. Oh, yeah, right. Well, when I first was arrested when I was younger, (sighs) yeah, that was basically it was the day before I was set to go back to Europe. And I was scheduled to be going to school in Europe. I was scheduled to be going back to see her. And I ended up getting arrested. They raided the house. Police everywhere. Knocking on the doors. Full, you know, the whole, the main, if you've ever seen like TV, it's like kind of like that. So, then I spent a night in jail, which was just my, – my, my physical body was depressed because I, all I did was sleep the whole time that I was in there. I got bailed out. My parents are like – have that aura of disappointment, which is the worst thing. It's just like I'm not even mad. I'm just disappointed. And on such a huge scale too, because my case was relatively public. So like it was on the news and so I had friends contacting me like, dude, what happened? You yeah. do this what did happen? I'm still not clear. What were you being arrested for? Well, I, for stealing those documents.
0: Oh, this was oh, this was the first time. This is the first time when oh, I got arrested. Oh, and that was on the and was it on the news, it the was story? On the news. Like the, it, this, it? you were stealing the yes. documents and selling them and everything? Yes. So that's So
1: everybody saw it, all my friends saw it, my parents you know friends saw it so there was like all kinds of shame there was so much there in and of itself but then on top of that my you know I wasn't in I wasn't enrolled to go to school so I wasn't in college didn't have a job obviously I was planning on leaving the country and so I'm home I'm at home with my family Who's disappointed, and it's just created this cloud of negativity over the whole house. Very, very challenging time for my whole family. And I have nothing to do but spin with my own thoughts. And so, in and of itself, that was a great learning opportunity as a 20 year old. That set me from the path of I'm going to get a history degree and go find some job relating to history, maybe in the government as a foreign service officer or something to completely towards self-reliance it was within within eight months I had already started a business like it was a I had to like slowly start this trajectory but within a, you know like eight months I had already started a business was freelancing Used that money to like move out of the house move up to Austin and go to University of Texas and kind of spread my wings a little bit, get back on my feet on my own, but that self reliance for sure came from that very, very dark place of getting arrested the first
0: time. Wow. And then uh out of curiosity, the girl in Switzerland, are y'all still in touch or anything like that? No. We're well? not
1: in touch anymore. I towards the end, I knew that I was leaving Switzerland. And I, for whatever reason, didn't think that there was enough of a future there. And so we split up and she really wanted to get married. And she found that breakup slash heartbreak to be incredibly challenging for her. So she's moved on and didn't let me back in for a long time. I'd love to have a conversation with her, just see how she's doing and stuff. But alas, that's not how these things
0: work. Yeah, well thanks for um man, thank you, Monsolf so much for I imagine not necessarily like you said, letting the conversation carry us before we began. I asked you if there was anything you didn't want to address or you wanted to address, and that you kinda of answered me in that way. Like let's let's see where the conversation takes us. So I honored my I got to honor my curiosity and I think I got to honor your genius of um articulating what's going on and seemingly a very real way it's very awesome and i think that that's going to really add to anyone that joins you with an experience with hunting and i think you hunting has something to do with you being able to embody that so well Hmm. like a reality check so thank you for being a yeah refreshing reality check
1: yeah well thanks for having me thanks for being willing to follow your curiosity and give me a platform to share the various ideas bouncing around in my head
0: yeah yeah it's definitely it's a gift to me so I trust it'll be a gift to others and yeah let us know leave in the review how was it for you Rasta thank you my friend (laughs) this boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society okay i'm gonna make this outro ubiquitous for the first 12 episodes and it's basically me taking my own advice walking my talk and asking for what i want without being attached to getting it and that's a review on this podcast a review on the breaking normal book whether it's on amazon or audible for y'all to start breaking normal and let me know what it does for you this is a big expression of my heart and soul. And it's another iteration of self-acceptance through self-expression. And I do believe that what's most personal is most universal. And it's a great guiding light for how to communicate with one another. So if this added value to your life, and even if you think it didn't, let me know through a review. And uh, don't forget about that We're going to be giving away a free tribe design to someone that leaves a review on the podcast. So go to BreakingNormal.com and check out the podcast section and uh, be eligible to win. To take action at least putting yourself in a position to win. This prize, and maybe this will be a big symbolic step, like one small step here may take a giant leap for the rest of your life to put yourself in the opportunity to win. Which also puts yourself in the opportunity not to win, which is... Both are a win, in my opinion. So let's tap into that vibration of winfinity and join us on that journey. And keep breaking normal. And stay in touch. And be sure to ask for what you want without being attached to getting it to the people that would matter the most. And if that's to me, reach out to me. Let's do it. I'm excited to hear about it. Much love to you all. I look forward to exploring this infinite, evolving adventure out loud authentically synergistically alchemically and in respect to the divine job bless